Here we go. Week three, asking for a friend. Here's our question today. Is the Bible the word of God or just words of men? Now, I know you have probably asked that question. Like, is this, is this real? Are the words that I'm reading, is this, is this just another book? Is it real? Should I feel something? What should my response be? If it is, why do we believe this book? Why, do, why should I learn these beliefs? Because we learn beliefs from everywhere, right? Like, we can learn beliefs from classrooms, from professors, from teachers. We can learn it from YouTube. Um, but just because someone says something um, or believes something doesn't make that true. And so you can sincerely believe something and be sincerely wrong at the same time. Amen? Right. Okay. Y'all are not very talking this morning. We're going to get you there. We're going, y'all, y'all are waiting. The Bible is one of the most controversial books in all the world. I don't know if you know this. In some countries, you're killed for it. Can't have it. Can't have a copy of it. Right? Um, they, they would like to get rid of them in libraries. They would like for us not to have them in public places because it's a controversial book. And, and here's why. Because the Bible holds the very words of God, the powerful words of God. They know that when you come into the words of God, transformation has to happen and you have to die to yourself when you come into the words of God. So if the Bible is true, if it's true, then we, there have to be ramifications for that, right? Like we, we should be doing something. We, we, there should be something different in our lives if the Bible is true. So the way we're going to answer this question is by asking questions, okay? Because we're going to need to ask a few things to understand a few things. So is this man's word or is this God's word? So if you have your Bible, you can turn to 2 Timothy Timothy, chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 16. And you probably have heard this. Anytime you talk about is the Bible true or anything about the Bible, this is always the verse that people go to. So he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says all of Scripture. So how much of this Scripture? All of it. Okay, so all of Scripture is inspired by God. It is profitable. Okay, it's profitable for teaching for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every single good work. So that's what Timothy is telling us that the Bible is. It is profitable. It, it is, there, there is always a, there, there's the content of what we read, and then there's something that it produces. We read, it produces. God inspired these words, his words help produce. So here's our first question. What is the Bible? I know that sounds like a very basic question, but we really need to get a grasp on that. If somebody asked you, somebody who didn't know Jesus asked you, tell me what the Bible is. You would need to have some type of answer from that just besides it's this book right here. But the Bible is is a collection. It's one volume of 66 books, 40 different authors written over a span of 1500 years. It's a lot of work for a book. So that's important. I want you to keep that in your mind as we, we move forward in this conversation this morning that it was 40 different authors written over a span of 1,500 years. And that's where you typically will lose people in this conversation. Well, could there have been mistakes made over those 1,500 years? you got 40 different people writing from 40 different perspectives from 40 different periods of time. 
that they're writing this. Things change. But at all points, all of these authors, all 40 of them, over the 1500 year span of time, all come to the same theme. And that same theme is this. This is God's love for mankind through his son, Jesus. Every one of them from Genesis to Revelation point to the same thing, the same theme that Jesus is salvation. He is the Messiah. The Bible starts out in Genesis to Revelation from front to back. Genesis, Revelation, the beginning and the end, Alpha, Omega. And in the very beginning in Genesis chapter one, the Bible says that in the beginning, God did what? He created. And every time God creates, God says this, it is good. It was good. The only time that he says it's not good when Adam is by himself, it's like, yeah, he's going to need a woman. He's going to need her because he's going to get lost in the garden and he's going to need to ask for direction. So God brings Eve into the fold. And so God creates Adam and Eve and everything's going great. But then we get to Genesis chapter three. And then all of a sudden there's a bite of fruit that God said, don't eat of this tree. And they ate of it anyway. And Adam sit there and watching Eve going, OK, Eve, you got this. You can do it. And if it's good, then OK, then I'm going to take a bite. And she do, he does and she does and sin entered the world and they go hiding from God. And God comes walking through the garden. And he asks, why are you hiding? And he says, because we have no clothes. I'm like, well, how did you know that? They told on themselves. So they get banished from the garden. Time ticks. Adam and Eve have kids, Cain and Abel. There's a fight. Fight gets a little too extreme. One kills the other. First murder is now recorded of a person in the Scripture. The world goes crazy. Anybody relate to that? The world goes crazy. God says, okay, we need to hit the reset button. So He resets it. He goes, if I could just find one person on the face of the earth that would be righteous and, 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 and that I could trust that would do this, that truly loves me and loves my commands and loves everything about me. He goes, there is a guy, that guy's name is Noah. And he gives Noah this crazy assignment out in the desert that, hey, Noah, you need to go build an ark. And not only are you going to build an ark, right? You're going to bring animals onto this ark. I know that you're not with the Ringling Brothers. You don't know how to do this stuff with a circus, but we're going to get you to put the animals because we're going to put it in your boat because you're going to restart. You're going to be the reset. So Noah decides, okay, I'm going to be obedient to God. Noah builds this ark. Anybody know what kind of wood it was? I know you do. I knew that Miss Janet would know to answer that question. But he, he builds it, and some people would say it was gopher wood and, uh, because they told him to go for wood. And so they built... i got to get one in there every now and again. And so they, they, build, they build the ark, and in come the animals. And everything's going well, and, and they're on the boat, and then when... The water recedes and they walk out on dry ground. The first thing they do, they get drunk. And they start all over again. And then we get to this man named Abraham and God says, I'm going to build my covenant with you. You're going to have a son. They laughed. They said, no way. Abraham rushes the, pro the, the, the process and he goes to Sarah and he says, listen, um, we're getting old and it, it, having kids doesn't happen at our age. And so she says, well, we have, we have a servant girl named Tamar, so just do as you will with Tamar. Maybe she can give you the son that you long for. And he does, and he rushes the process and messes that all up. And then one day God says, finally, you're pregnant. And she laughs, and they name the son Isaac. And then Abraham's going to be called to take Isaac up a hill to sacrifice him, and God's going to step in. And oddly enough, it's going to be or coincidental enough, or God has his timing, that the same hill of Mount Moriah that Abraham will walk his son up with a bundle of sticks on his back will be the exact same hill that Jesus will walk up with two sticks on his. Pointing 
to the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. So Abraham's promise that you're going to be the father of many nations. Then we find this guy named Moses who's floating down the river in a basket. He becomes a prince of Egypt. Watching his people, 1.5 million Egyptians, be mistreated and treated as slaves. And he gets out of his anger and he kills one of them. And then in fear of his own life, he takes off to the deserts of Midian. And he gets to the, the desert of Midian and he just decides he's going to be a shepherd. He's left everything behind in Egypt and here he is as a shepherd. And one day something really weird happens is a bush that's on fire. And now it's talking to him. And Moses goes into full conversation with the bush. God's presence. And he begins to tell him that you're going to free my people. You go back. And Moses goes back and he frees his people and he gets Israel out of Egypt. And he will lead them what should have taken six days to get from point A to point B because a guy was leading the process took them 40 years to get to the promised land. And Moses didn't even get to make the journey because there's another guy that he had handpicked that stood up and, and was the leader and Joshua gets to fight the battles. Everything goes great. Then they want to be like everybody else. They decide we're going to have a king. We want a king. Everybody else has got a king. God says, you have a king. It's me. I provide everything you need. They said, God, I don't think you understand. Like We want to be like everybody else. He says, okay, you can have a king. And they chose a guy named King Saul. You know why they chose King Saul? Because it says that he was good looking. That did not work out well for Israel because Saul misled the people. He mishandled the things that God had asked him to do, the responsibility. He fumbled it to the point it was so bad that God gives a call to a little shepherd boy that is out in the fields of lowly little Bethlehem and says that you're going to be the king. It's not your time yet, but you're going to be the king. And while Saul's over here leading the people of Israel, He's raising up the next leader of Israel in a field with just a stone, a few stones and a slingshot. And he raises him up and Saul mishandles this responsibility of being king of Israel so bad, he takes his own life. And David steps in as the king. And David will do an incredible job leading the people. But he will have his fall. He will look over and see Bathsheba and will commit, have an affair, will commit murder and will disqualify himself from being king. The king thing did not work out. They go from having one king to having multiple kings. The nation of Israel will now be split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom did not do so well. You had Rehoboam and Jeroboam. The northern kingdom decides they get to worship the way they want to worship in Israel because, in Jerusalem because they've got the temple. So we're going to build our own thing. So they go to the place of Bethel and they go to the place of Dan and they build two false idols that they begin to worship and say, you can just come here because they were fearful that if people left the northern kingdom to go to the southern kingdom, then they would never come back because they would experience the worship in the temple. So they gave the people what they wanted. And God says, listen, you get to the book of Judges. He says, we got a problem. You guys are just going through this cycle. You sin. I bring oppression on you. You repent. You change your ways and you do it again. It's just this vicious cycle. Your kings are doing it. You're doing it. So I'm going to take my hand off of you. And the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom will fall under slavery. And they're taken out of their homeland, the promised land, the land that was promised to them. God's people are taken out and removed. 
And now the only thing that they've ever known was freedom. Now the only thing they ever known is the same thing that their ancestors knew. Slavery. But God, in his mercy and his goodness, saves a remnant of Israel and allows them to return. And he sends them back in. And then when he returns, they get back into Israel and they begin to rebuild. And then the Old Testament ends on this cliffhanger. And for 400 years in between your book of Malachi to your book of Matthew, God is silent. He's not speaking. And it's quiet. So the final words of Malachi ends with silence. But then we flip over to this New Testament. There's a new prophet in town. His name is John the Baptist. You guys remember him? Rough guy around the edges. Probably see him out in Macedonia here in Berkeley County somewhere. It's the kind of guy he was. And John is preaching the same sermon over and over and over. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And people are lining up and they've been baptized. And then one day, the word himself comes walking up. And he says, this is the guy. This is the one that I've been preaching about. And Jesus comes and he baptizes Jesus. And audibly, the people that were there by the Jordan that day hear these words. This is my son who I'm well pleased. If there was any doubt on who this guy was, they just verbally heard the voice of God. And then just to make things, just to stamp it, a dove comes down marking the Holy Spirit upon the life of Jesus that He is indeed in the Spirit. He is Spirit and truth. And we go through these Gospels and the Gospels describe the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And then you get to the book of Acts and we call that the Acts of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit comes in order for the Gospel to be advanced. And then we get these epistles. There were these epistles that were written to these churches that were out of control. Galatia, uh, the church in Ephesus. You know, how many of you would agree with me that if Paul was still around, the church in America would probably be getting a letter today, right? Okay. And so, and then we get to the book of Revelation and this ends it all. This is the whole book. It's a prophetic picture of future events that are going to happen. The Bible is not a science book. It's not a biology book. It is not a self-help book. It is a book that gives us the, this, this message that God is salvation. That Jesus is salvation. It doesn't contain all the answers to life's questions. Like, is there life on another planet? I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if there's life on this planet. Were the dinosaurs on the ark? Really good question. So there's some questions that we just we don't know from the Bible. There were dinosaurs in the Bible, by the way. We can talk about that a whole another another time, but the, the Bible talks about dinosaurs. What we do know is the Bible is a love letter from God for mankind on how to have a personal relationship with him through his son. So let's ask this question then what does the Bible say about itself? We know what it is. What does it say about itself? And by the way, we just covered 5,000 years of history in the last three minutes. There you go. Um, and so what does the Bible say about itself? Because the Bible is a product and it's a process. It tells us the product and then it gives us a process. So some versions uh, will use different translations of this verse. And I don't think it's a very good translation. And I'm going to read the verse and tell you why. But it says all scripture is what? It's inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Now, this translation gives us a different understanding. I think a better word here is not inspired, but is God breathed, 
right? Because our thought is that these guys are just like, oh, I think I'll just write down these thoughts. This is how I feel about the thing. And they, and they just started jotting down. And what I want you to understand is the word inspired doesn't mean that the authors were inspired by their, their own life, but these were the words that God put in their hearts and their minds. These words were inspired by God, not inspired by man. And they used these words and they allowed this inspiration that God was giving them to guide their hearts and their hands to produce this God-breathed book. And that's how we got the book. So what about proof? Because we can have these conversations all day of what is the Bible? But if we can't give proof, people argue. And even with proof, sometimes people will argue. And by the way, none of this is for us to be able to get in theological arguments with people. Uh, people do not have any respect for Christians that all they want to do is walk around with their, their puffed up knowledge and tell you how much they know and argue with you on every single little thing. Amen? Amen. I'll amen myself on that. Um, so, so what proof do we have of the Bible's truthfulness? Number one, we have discovery. Discovery. We have many accepted documents in our culture, in our world. Documents that we would give a lot of weight to that are very, very very old documents, documents that are thousands of years old from the original document that was written. Um, an example would be um, the Odyssey by Homer. You read that in school? Okay, not the Simpsons. The Odyssey, Homer. There are only three copies in existence. Three copies. The earliest copy we have is 2,000 years after the original was written. That's the earliest copy we have. So you have the original that's written, and then 2,000 years later is the earliest copy that we have of the original work, and we only have three of those copies. Nobody questions that, by the way. It's just an accepted document that this must be real and true, but it's been 2,000 years from the original to the copy. Or um, Caesar's The Galactic Wars, there are only 10 copies it was written, the, the copy that we have is 900 years after the original was written. But nobody questions that document. We use it as historical truths, right? The New Testament, there are over 5,500 copies, plus copies. 5,500. You ready? 100 years from the original. 100. And everybody and their mama questions it. But we don't question these other documents that are thousands of years old. But we're, and, 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 these were eyewitness accounts. I saw Jesus. I saw the tomb. I saw him be crucified. I walked with him when he was risen. These are eyewitness accounts to the New Testament and to the Old Testament. Now, there's a really cool thing about this. Um, there's a place, I'll show you a picture. There's a place called Qumran. It is in Israel. Um, for those that are going with us to Israel, um, we're going to take you to the place called Qumran. If you're a Star Wars fan, it looks like they filmed Star Wars here, but they didn't. Um, but this is called Qumran. And here's what's so special about this place. This is where the Essenes lived. Remember that guy I told you about that, was, that would have fit in well in Macedonia here in Berkeley County? John the Baptist, that guy. Here's the thing about John the Baptist. He was an Essene because his daddy was an Essene. Well, what does that mean? What are the Essenes? The Essenes used to work in the temple, but they didn't like the way the temple people were being corrupted by the government. So they decided we're going to go start our own thing. And they collected all their writings of scripture and they just took it with them out into the Judean wilderness. Where was John the Baptist baptizing? In the Judean wilderness. 
He is an Essene. He had every right by Essene, by who his dad was, that he could have gone back to Jerusalem and worked in the temple and had it made. But he chose to, to remain an Essene. And these Essenes protected the Scriptures. They wrote them note by note, letter by letter. And then when they'd get it written, somebody would count it. They knew exactly what letter needed to be where and when. And if it wasn't, they bought it up. You had to start over. This was all handwritten, by the way. So they're here in Qumran in the Judean desert. They're writing. And in 1970, these two Bedouin boys, or a shepherd boy, excuse me, 1949, these two Bedouin boys are out walking in the desert and one of them grabs a rock and they're throwing it and he throws it in a cave and he hears this crash come out of the cave and thought, that's not normal. He goes up and he finds this pottery and there's a scroll in the pottery. So he decides this is an opportunity for me to make some money. So he tears off a piece of the scroll and he takes it down into the city. He's hoping to sell it at the antiquity and he says, hey, I got this and and they're like, okay, we'll give you this for it. And they, they bought it. And he's like, okay, well, they gave me money. I'm going back. So he goes back and he tears off another piece. He said, I found some more. They gave him money. So like, I like where this is going. He goes back again and he tears off another piece and he comes back and they give him more money. At this point, the collector says, oh, please do not tear off another piece. Because what he was holding, what they had found were the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's the earliest copy of the Scriptures that we have today. Just from throwing rocks. And they would go on to excavate 14 different caves and they found a copy of every single book of the Bible with the exception of Esther. Why Esther? We think that they didn't give a whole lot of credit to Esther because Esther is the only book of the Bible that does not mention the name of God. The full book, they have an entire fully written copy of the book of Isaiah fully and they said okay what credibility do we have in this manuscript so they compared our modern book of Isaiah to the original book of Isaiah and y'all it was only off by 17 letters but yet we question the legitimacy of those documents but we do not question the Roman documents that were written 2,000 years after the original and these little boys found it and they searched and they searched and they searched and they found all copies, every single book with the exception. So the question is, what, what does that mean? I think that gives us incredible confidence that the words that we have in our hands are the very words that God wanted us to have so much that he would allow the Essenes to leave corruption, move to the desert to handwrite and, and to hold to keep this for us. That in 1949, two shepherd boys, isn't it amazing what God can do with shepherd boys in Israel? Because they were the lowest of the caste system, but yet they, outside of tearing the documents, found one of the most important documents for us as believers. Gives us confidence. So we have discovery, but we all have to have this as chronology. Okay? The only way somebody can coordinate the events that are in the Bible is they would have to write the first book and have to write the end book so they know what to put in the middle of the book, right? Because I need to know, so as a writer, you have to go, this is what the story is going to be about. This is how it's going to start. Now this is how it's going to end. And then I start writing what's going to happen in the middle of the story. 
But the only way for me to get the middle of the story details right is I got to know how it starts and how it's going to end, right? Now, I want to show you something because the end results of the Bible are based on the beginning. And for this to happen, it has to be a divine author. Let me show you this photo. Now, it's kind of hard to see, but every little drop down here is a book of the Bible. So all of them are there listed here. The center line, that's Psalm 119 because that's the middle of, of the Bible, right? So if you open your Bible to the very middle, it would be Psalm 119. Oddly enough, talks about practicing and living in the Word of God. All these lines, this is every single cross-reference in the Bible proving itself. Dr. Jordan Peterson would say, uh, and, and he did an interview on this very thing and said that the Bible is the first hyperlinked document that we have because it links everything. I'm reading about this in Matthew, but it's going to come back over here to Isaiah. And if you look in your Bibles, many of your Bibles will have verses written all the way down. These are cross-references. Pointing from this verse to this verse to this verse. And you can go on rabbit trails of verses. There are 63,779 connections in the Bible. You can't do that if you do not know the beginning in the end, you can't write the middle. You, sm you smell what I'm stepping in? Like, you can't just make this stuff up. You gotta know. You have to know. The point is, if this, if this word was com composed by one man, we would say that that guy was a master, right? The problem is this is written by 40 men on three continents over a span of 1,500 years. And there's 63,000 plus cross-references to prove it. If you had any question if the Bible is real, that should rattle you just a little bit. Because that doesn't happen by chance at all. So we learn through discovery. We, we can learn through chronology. But we also can learn this. I'll just give you one more, but this is on prophecy. The Bible is full of prophecies. Um. A prophecy is something that is foretelling the future from the past in a very precise way. So if some, for instance, because some people are like, mm, that's a fortune teller, right? No. Um, if we said it this way, if someone said to you in 200 years, you're going to have a great, 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 great grandson. And they're going to be walking on Highway 6 and, or driving on Highway 6. And they're going to be driving a, a black Ford F-150. And they're going to get hit at the stoplight on Highway 6 and Main Street, or 17 and Main Street back here by the Piggly Wiggly. And they're going to get hit in their Ford F-150 black by a lady driving a green Mazda. And it's going to have the license tag of Ohio, because they all down here. And it's going to be ACD 459 license tag and the serial number on the car is going to be 0071496787 hashtag too many letters. And they're going to call that specifically. And in 200 years, guess what happens? They get hit in their Ford F-150 by the Mazda driven by the lady from Ohio with the exact serial number and the exact license tag. That is the prophecy. Okay, so. Guess how many prophecies are in the Bible? 2,500. 2,500 prophecies in the Bible. 
2,000 of those prophecies have already been fulfilled. 500 we're still waiting on. And when those 500 are fulfilled, Jesus will be back and we will be home. So we're still waiting on the 500. That's why it's so important for us to watch Israel. Because Israel is setting the stage for what's going to happen in end times. But let me give you a couple of prophecies. The Bible says in the Old Testament in Isaiah that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Okay? It's not the city that a king would come from. But Bethlehem is tied to many, many important events. Remember a lady named Ruth and Boaz? Ruth and Boaz will come out of Bethlehem, but they will also start the lineage to get to David, and David will start the lineage to get to Jesus, and that's why they ended up from Nazareth in the Bethlehem. But you've got to know the beginning of the story and the end of the story to be able to make that detail happen. And that was prophesied 700 years before it actually happened. Okay? It said that he would be born of a virgin. That's never happened before. He'll end up in Egypt. And that was a hard one because the Jewish people would do everything in their power not to go back to Egypt. He says that he'll be betrayed for the price of a slave. He will be sold for 30 pieces of silver. In Psalm 22, it says that he will die by crucifixion. Here's what's interesting about that. Crucifixion did not exist when that prophecy was made in the book of Psalm. It wasn't even, it wasn't even there. This prophecy was made 400 years before crucifixion became a thing. Good guess? Or inspired God-breathed word? I, 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 there's a couple of years ago, I, we did a series called This or That, and we talked about the importance of Scripture. But I want to circle around back to this, and you've heard me talk about Dr. Peter Stoner before. Dr. Stoner, was he was real big in probability and statistics, all right? So not a teacher that I would have ever had because the probability of me taking that and passing that class was a zero. And so Dr. Stoner wanted to know, what is the probability of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the 300 messianic prophecies? What would be the probability? So he assembles this team of about 600 science students, and they begin to work through the math and do the calculations. And they said, okay, what, what would be the chances of Jesus fulfilling eight of 300 Messianic prophecies? And they came up with an answer. It was 100, uh, one in 100 quadrillion. This is what the number would actually look like. Um, if you're giving online and accidentally put that many zeros on it, uh, we, we save in the world at that point. That's the chances of Jesus fulfilling eight of all those prophecies. Now, that's just a bunch of zeros. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't really get that. Let me, let me paint a picture to wrap your mind around it. Let's say that we have quadrillion silver dollars. There's a ton of them. That's enough to cover the entire state of Texas. Okay, anybody been to Texas? All right, we got to get out and travel. Mission trip, Texas, next summer. Let's go. They said there's enough to cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Silver coins, right? Now, if we grab one of those coins and we marked an X on it, and then we went over to Oklahoma and we pulled a guy blindfolded, took that coin, and we threw that coin just randomly into the state of Texas in two, foot, two feet deep of coins, and we bring blindfolded guy from Oklahoma, and we put him in a helicopter and we said, you just tell us when to land. 
and we're going to land and you go grab that coin. And we fly and he says here and we drop and he reaches down and grabs that one coin with the X on it in the middle of the state of Texas and two foot deep of coin. What are the chances of that happening? One, one quadrillion. That's the exact same scenario of Jesus fulfilling eight of 300 messianic prophecies. And we have it. We have not just biblical evidence, we have historical evidence outside of the Bible that says that dude was real, and yes, he did do that. Yes, he did do that. So Jesus didn't just fulfill the eight prophecies, everybody. He has fulfilled all 300 messianic prophecies that were written hundreds of years before him. And he proclaimed these as a prophet. And as a prophet, you had to tell the truth. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here's the last question, because I think we have to answer this. What does all this mean for us today? Let's say that you have your father passes away and years go by. And someone comes knocking on your door and they say, I have a book. I have this book of stories. It's about wisdom. It's a bunch of encounters. It talks about sacrifices. And we found that it was actually written by your father about you. How he gave everything for you. If your dad had gone that many years and you found out that there was a book written about how much he loved you, cared for you, what he did for you, you'd want to read that book, wouldn't you? Your father has written a book about how much he loves you, how much he cares for you, and how, what he did and the sacrifices that he made for you. We should want to read that book, shouldn't we? It's more than just paper and leather. It's the Holy Word of God that transforms, it cuts like a sword convicts us through the work of the Holy Spirit. God wrote the book. And if God wrote the book, wrote the book, we should want to read the book. This morning, you'll notice on the back of your handout, our worship team's going to come. We'll get ready to, to sing. But we went full pieces of paper this morning um, because I thought what was on the back is so essential. A lot of people say this. I don't even know where to start when it comes to read the Bible. Any, let's just be honest. Did anybody have that problem with somebody said, hey, here's what you should do. I'm glad you're Christian. You should read this. And you go, okay. And then we flip over. And we're like, all right, what should I start? Oh, Leviticus. This seems like a cool book. What is it about? When there is burn on the skin, one's body is produced by fire and the patch made raw by the burn becomes reddish white or white. You don't going to get this Jesus thing another day. Because this is intimidation that we give people this and we say, just read it, learn it, grow it, use it, whatever. On the back of your handout, this is a simple way for you to be able to read the Bible and get into God's Word. We call it HEAR, H-E-A-R. And if you'll follow this pattern, it'll give you a very easy way to do this. Okay? What are you highlighting? What did you highlight? Write about it. And you just go through the, the acronym. And if you'll do this and get in a habit, I promise you this, that every time that you open that Word, you will be met by the Father. The Spirit will speak if we open and give time to it. I don't know about you, 
But if we're going to accept all these other documents that are thousands of years old, and I don't even know that I can trust those, I can't even trust what's on social media. But I can tell you this, that God has left breadcrumbs to prove that this right here is the Word of God. And I'm thankful that people have fought and lost their lives for us to continue to have this book. I'm thankful that in 1949 those Bedouins found that cave. I'm thankful they didn't tear any more off of it. Um, for those going to Israel, we're going to take you to the caves, but I'm also going to take you to see the Dead Sea Scroll. We're going to see the book of Isaiah laid out. And, um, and then it'll become really real to you all of a sudden. Can I pray for you, Father? I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for your word. Lord, that you are a father that loves us and you have written this, this love story about the sacrifice that you made to get your son here to die for us so that we could be restored back to you and have a relationship with you. God, I pray that right now there, there may be people in the room, I know there is, that are convicted on the time that they spend in this word, the, this, how serious they take this word. Just pray that you would not stop bothering them about that. You'll continue to convict them so they'll read it because, God, this is the very best thing that we can do. When we're sick, we want medicine. We are sick and broken, and this is the medicine to bring the healing and the understanding of who you are. So I just pray as we, we sing that we would just trust your word, trust what you have for us is good. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.